Gentlemen, we're 37 on the clock here. 4.37, yes we do. Okay, I got written that down. Hello, welcome. Rick Bucata, Greg... <laughs> Shit. Let us do our own names. You, you. Hello, welcome. Rick Bucata here. Greg Henry. Mel Herbert. Gentlemen, it's September. Wasn't that a great song when we were like in junior high school, See You in September? Now, I'm not going to break into song here, but I hope that this lusty, usty, <laughs> lusty, usty, oh, that's terrible. Go ahead. <laughs> All right, let's get started here. We, uh, we have a couple of things interesting, I think, for you this month. We have uh, the great debate. Yes. Melvis and I. are going down, dude. We're, and, we're, and I'm just going to sit as the <laughs> official referee. We have the great debate, which will be uh, a, a little bit in the uh, uh, further on. We have a couple of cases to review, uh, a couple of letters, and we have a couple of uh, things from the literature and a little le medical legal no, update you're not, coming to you. You're not reading uh, literature again, are you, Rick? Uh, just a little bit. Okay. Just a little bit All here. Right. Um, let's get started. Uh, the first thing I think uh, we were going to do is um, there, what's in the news. This is this business about... Um, Entity insurance. Now, this sounds like it's going to be a sleeper, but the fact of the matter is it's really a, something really important for you directors to be aware of with regards to insuring your company as well as the doctors who are insured and some of the pros and cons of that, and Greg's going to talk about that. Yes, and what we have to remember is uh, w everything is uh, neat and clean uh, when we talk about a case, it's when we start talking about how you get back through that case decision at your money, whether it's your money, the group's money, the hospital's money, all of those things are important. And uh, I'm glad we're going to get a chance to talk about that this week, Rick. We like money. idea was, were we going to insert in here the whole piece that he yep. did before? Okay. What would he edit? Yeah. yeah. All right, any questions on entity insurance? Yeah, I got lots of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm sure I'll people, calling, are gonna, people are going to be writing in about this one, Rick. I'll be calling my lawyer. Yeah. I know, me oh, understand. you're in county, man. You don't need a lawyer. Yeah, that's right. We have no entity. That's right. Next is on the line is, um, Greg, do you want to do a case or two? Yes, I'd love to do a case or two. And uh, so we might as well take actual cases against emergency physicians and see what we have to talk about here. Let me just uh, pull those out. The first one, none of you are going to like. Sorry about that. <laughs> this is a failure to timely um, uh, treat a patient who comes into the emergency department with an elevated bleeding time. They suffer a death from a cerebellar hemorrhage, and this one uh, amounted to a significant loss in the state of Massachusetts. Let's review it. A 70 five-year-old um, woman comes to the emergency department who has coronary artery disease, has had a bypass, has had grafting, uh, has asthma, and she also has atrial fibrillation and hypertension. She is, of course, on our favorite drug, Coumadin. And uh, I don't know how you guys view it, but Coumadin always has a problem uh, in the department because it is the drug of death. Uh, we only see the bad side of Coumadin, and I understand that. But whenever you come in and you're on Coumadin, it's a problem. Yeah, there is a big pr uh, push in the primary care literature to get physicians 
to put more and more patients on Coumadin who have atrial fibrillation because when you do it, this overall risk assessment, it's really better to be on it and decrease your risk of strokes. But w there is this acknowledgement that it can, the INRs can be all over the place. And we see a skewed uh, distribution of those. And, and, and that's why I went on, on the record as saying the average emergency doc sees a different patient population. We, uh, yeah, just in terms of numbers, on average, if you've got a couple of risk factors, because there are risk factors for stroke, you reduce your yearly risk of stroke from about 7 or 8% per year to less than 1% if you're on Coumadin. And uh, that's a significant, obviously, a significant drop. We're talking number needed to treat there of uh, 20 or less to prevent one stroke. So it's it works, but it works. That's the problem. <laughs> it makes you bleed. Well, on arrival, uh, this patient had a blood pressure of 289 over 157. 89, not 285. No, 289. I think they made that yeah, up. Yeah, it's a tough one. And, the, uh, and uh, she had, as chief complaints, nausea, vomiting, difficulty breathing, a headache and a quote-unquote, according to the nurse, not probably recognized by the doctor, a floppy arm. Now, a uh, chest X-ray was done, which revealed some congestive heart failure, and uh, she was given uh, nitroglycerin and Lasix. And um, and uh, while she's in the department, they did a PTT and INR. Why they did a PTT, I don't know. But they did an INR. Well, that's so typical. Well, we can we can talk about that for a second. We're not going to let we're not going to let you go crazy in this. But the INR was uh, twelve point uh, six. Sell, sell. Yeah. <laughs> At that moment in time, they decide. Here's the here's the case. Now they gave the patient uh, vitamin K, um, and about an hour and a half after that result came back, two hours later. Um, she was minimally responsive, uh, and uh, later, a uh, 45 minutes later, uh, a house officer ordered a CT of the brain, which of course showed a massive hematoma. The claim here is, the plaintiff's claim was, the cause of death was the cerebellar hemorrhage, and if when she had entered the department, fresh frozen plasma had been given instead of vitamin K, she would have done well. Now, I know you're becoming apoplectic. <laughs> uh, both Mel and Rick here are, are suffering. Uh, the defendant also claimed that she had not been, uh, the defendant, the doctor, uh, sort of turned uh, during the trial. State's evidence? Well, she turned state's evidence that she had not been made aware of the elevated bleeding in time until the vitamin K had been ordered. In any event, in this case... Uh, money did change hands, and it went against the hospital and the doctor. Now, we can talk about the science, we can talk about the show, but it almost doesn't make any difference. We lost money on this case. So where did they make the mistakes? Mel, Melvis, go ahead. Well, I'll just talk it from a medical point of view. If somebody comes in, they're on Coumadin, they're hypertensive, they've got a headache, um, even whether he, the doctor, he or she noticed that there was a floppy arm, you have to presume that this person has an intracranial bleed from the Coumadin. Most places, most good hospitals will have a protocol in place. And those protocols, and I've reviewed a number of them actually just lately, will have a protocol that involves uh, rapid CT scanning and then rapid reversal. And some of them begin the rapid reversal while they're waiting for the CT scan. With what? So that reversal generally includes, if you're on Coumadin and you have an intracranial bleed, this is a four-alarm fire, it includes vitamin K, FFP, if you have it, something that actually works because the FFP takes 
24 hours to really work. Um, the vitamin K is generally given IV, the FFP. Then you're going to get a uh, Beriplex, uh, some... Um, Prothrombin pro complex concentrate is the generic name for these pro uh, factors, 2, 7, 9, nine and 10. 10. It comes in a small bottle. It is used extensively throughout the world. Mm. And this is a really fascinating topic because... Um, the American College of Chest Physicians in uh, 2004 had an algorithm for what you're supposed to do when people come in with life-threatening bleeds. And in that algorithm, they said, fine, you give IV vitamin K just as Melvis said. And they also said you give th prothrombin complex concentrate. They didn't even say in 2004 to use fresh frozen plasma. But we all, still, we all do at this point. It was not in the algorithm. This is, and this is an American organization. Yep. The Brits have also made recommendations which say the identical, identical thing. In 2008, the American College of Chest Physicians came out with a revised protocol for life-threatening hemorrhage, in which they said, and in fact, I would lo love to be able to quote it. And now, I didn't know that we were getting into the specifics. But they said... In essence, yeah, you can use fresh frozen plasma, but to really turn this stuff around, you must use a prothrombin complex concentrate. So what they did is they backed off a little bit because what they did when they, with their first recommendations is set up a standard of care that nobody in the United States follows. Um, so they kind of watered it down with no new evidence, by the way, no new evidence that suggests that fresh frozen plasma was going to do the job. They threw it in there, but they, their statement, which I could read to you, it's, it's, you can find it on the internet, American College of Chest Physicians, 2008 uh, guidelines. They make it very clear that what you should use is prothrombin complex concentrate, which does not appear to be available in the United States of America. Well, that's what was so uh, bad and good about it. was very pragmatic, their revision, because their revision realized, somebody realized, you know what, almost nobody has this. And our hospital doesn't have it. And we see 20 intracranial bleeds wait, a day. Wait a minute. You're the largest emergency <laughs> department in the country, and, and you don't have it? We don't have it. I tried a month ago. We have a clinical pharmacologist. We have one 24-7. And I said, do we have uh, one of these uh, things, protein uh, concentrates? Because Beriplex is just one of about yes. four different ones. Right. Beriplex is probably the best if you look at the literature. And uh, she went upstairs and did her thing, came back, nope. So what do we do if we have to reverse this? We have to use activated factor seven. Well, you could squeeze. You could put your arm around them and squeeze on the head very tightly. <laughs> I think that that might do it. You're right. Prothrombin complex concentrate. A substitute for that is factor seven A. Right. But that's only factor seven. Right. The others are two, seven, nine, and ten, which is exactly the four factors that warfarin screws up. Not all factors are created equal. Seven is disproportionately important, important in, the, right. in the clotting cascade. And so, yes, you can do it. It is, a, yes, it, it is a much more expensive. All of the literature on this makes it pretty clear that we ought to be using this stuff. And, and when we do our courses, all the Australians raise their hand and look around the room and say, what, you don't have this stuff? They use this routinely in their, in their cases. Do you have it at your hospital, Rick? No, I, and that, I wanted to bring up another <laughs> Cause, point. Because I don't have it. I wanted it. to bring up another point. Uh, our pharmacy and therapeutics committee periodically reviews its protocols. And so about six months ago, the pharmacists, they rubber stamp all this crap coming through there. And they, he, wrote, he reviewed the protocol for uh, you know, hemorrhage and the se setting of warfarin. And it says use prothrombin complex concentrate. Our hospital protocol says use it. I said, oh, fine. I didn't know we had it. And he said, would you, I said, would you check to see if we have it? Because I don't know that anybody else does. He comes back, no, we don't. So here we have the protocol <laughs> saying to do it, and, and, and yet the doctors can't. Let, let me just tell you right now, in the face of a disaster, 
you've got no defense. Your own hospital protocol exactly. says give it. You don't have it. How, how do you take that to the general public and say, well, it's not do as we say, it's do as we do. So what we need is we need some uh, pharmacologist to uh, investigate where this is in this country. It does not appear to exist. I've not had one American doctor raise their hands and say, oh, yeah, we use this all the time. Not one. Well, we can go further, though, with the science, though, because there's been actually a number of trials of intracranial bleeding with factor 7, and you can reduce the size of that bleed, but the mortality was no that's better. Why, exactly that's right. That's why they should have called us to be their expert witness. Decreasing the size does not change the outcome. That's why the factor 7a trials were stopped yep. prematurely because, yes, the hemorrhage was smaller. Outcomes were the same. Grandma's you died. Still dead. Yeah, so, yeah, you're still dead. So this, right. this person would have died no matter what they had given. I, I think that's probably the case. The problem, Rick, is... In the courtroom, and we're going to talk about that later, it is show business in front of a jury, and the show business here did not go in their favor, and it certainly didn't help that the doctor then turned on the nursing staff and said, well, I wasn't told about the uh, results well, of the INR. Well, you're an idiot if, you haven't, if you're not actively seeking out that result. I right. don't know who that doctor was, of course. Yes. Yeah. By the way, if you're a subscriber... It, it's okay, you know. We, we, can, lose a, we can afford to lose yeah. one but subscription it, every once. Well, in I a while. hear these cases like most people who listen to these series, and just like the rage starts to burn in me like a flame <laughs> from hell. If you don't like that <laughs> one, you just wait to the next one, Jack. But why? Surely a good. If I had Greg Henry uh, standing over there and he was my defense expert, surely he'd be able to sit up there eloquently and go, "Look, let's talk about this." You could have put urine on this person's forehead versus vitamin K versus FFP. It wasn't going to change the anything. The horse is out of the barn. Yeah. You could not have fixed it. But unfortunately, the results of the Factor 7A trials are fairly recent. And I dare say they probably came out after the results yeah. of this study. So it was always believed if we can make the hemorrhage smaller in the head, the outcomes will be better. Right. Well, that just isn't true. That isn't true. Um, all right. So before you go on, you going to another case? Yes, sir. Before you do that, I do think it's important to throw in here how much fresh frozen plasma you would give somebody. Because I ask this of the audience all the time. How much would you give? And you would never give like one or three units. No, Because no. it's an odd number. So more often than not, the answer is two units. And two units is woefully under what you're supposed to give. Yeah. You're, you're supposed to give 10 to 15 mLs per kilogram. So for me, that would be 100, uh, it's 1,500 ml, uh, mLs of fresh frozen plasma. There's only 200 in a bag. That's seven bags that you need to give this person. It's three times what most doctors would give. Most people don't know what the dose is. And the fact of the matter is, is that if you give an inadequate dose, I think you're potentially culpable again. So please, guys. We don't have the stuff that we need out there right now. You know the right amount to give. There is this issue of you have to defrost it. It has to be type specific. You have, you know, it's going to take a while to give a liter to half of this stuff. All of these things are reasons why prothrombin complex concentrate is better. And you do that. You do the right amounts, and it still takes more than 24 hours to do much of anything. I mean, it's, this no, is not, it, some, it's not something that occurs like this. I, it I don't think it's long. that long. No, no question that the vitamin K takes a long time. I mean, you've got to restock liver uh, uh, factors, but uh, I don't think the fresh frozen plasma it's, takes that it's long. A, I can't remember. Well, the head, the heads, it's, it's like 12 the hours or basically more. show that within a half hour of giving prothrombin complex concentrate, right. your INR of 11 is now down to 2. Yeah. Uh, it is a remarkable. It's a half hour. 
uh, it is not you can't even get this stuff to frost it in a half hour at Fresno and right right I agree with that so um, I think there's some medical things that are important in this case the the legal points were I didn't I didn't know the results. Was that, was that one of the legal, legal points here? So <laughs> you're telling me that's a bad thing to uh, throw the nurses under the train? That's it, not going to help? Do not never pick on anybody else. You talk about what you did, but to say this should have happened or that should have happened, as sur- soon as a, a jury picks up on that fighting uh, within the house, sort of this inter-Nicene warfare, you're going to essentially set off doubt, serious doubt about the quality of the care. Do not do that. All right, some good points were made in that case. Let's All right. move on. All right, well, can next. Can I ask you one more question though before we go? Uh, because Rick brought it up. What if my hospital protocol says use drug X and I have no access to drug X? What is the, what's the jury going to do well, with that? Well, well here's me. another one. What happens if your hospital protocol says use drug X and you're totally unaware that the hospital protocol exists? I didn't know, know that this policy existed regarding pro- trauma and complex. Gentlemen, we have three issues here on the table, all of which are important. Let's, let's take them one at a time. The first one is the hospital policy says use drug X, and you don't have drug X. I think the hospital has now put itself in a situation where the loss ought to go to the hospital, um, if there's going to be a loss at all. And I think Rick's point's well taken this person's toast, no matter what you do. But if a jury wants to come back, you followed the, the policy. You've asked for the correct medication. If the hospital doesn't have the correct medication, that's their problem. Let's now, t- now, if I lost, let's say I, um, I lost this case, could I go back to the hospital as an individual and say, uh, you set up this protocol, I lost this lawsuit, you didn't uh, supply the drug you said was on your protocol, I'm suing the hospital. You didn't yes, ask you for it, though, doctor. Let's say, well, let's say I asked for it. Okay. I didn't have it. No. See, you would, you, you would have, it's not that clear cut, but depending how the contract is written, if there are, as we spoke about in the last, uh, last taping, cross-indemnification clauses, that means if one side can be shown through reasonable testimony to have been the cause of the problem, then any losses you suffer, you can go back after the other party. So you could legitimately raise the cross indemnification issue on a in a matter such as that, and uh, pain and suffering fifty million dollars because my hospital screwed me, and I could retire. <laughs> fifty would would that wouldn't even pay your bar bills, Mel? <laughs> All right, so that was one. So what about the scenario where Rick talked about? Um, here's the protocol, but I was completely unaware of the protocol. Stop Say what uh, protocol? Yeah, don't do okay. that. Uh, understand that uh, ignorance of the law. Is, is no excuse. If you have a hospital protocol which has to do with your department and the patients you would reasonably expected to see, then you should be aware of that policy. For example, there's no reason you should be aware of a policy in the OB department. But if it's a policy which impacts the patients that you are likely to come in contact with, and where do patients who are, who are on Coumadin come when they're having problems. The emergency department, exclusively, you should be expected to be aware of that policy. So uh, that's our pull. So I need to make sure when I started a new hospital, 
or I'm at my old hospital that I go to rec- the director and say, where's your policies and procedures manuals? I uh, need to have a little uh, read Let me tell you something. Which, which, let me, which, let me which, dust these things <laughs> off here. I don't know. They're about from the 60s. <laughs> let me tell you something that's embarrassing. When a, a new nurse starts at most of these hospitals, he or she has a six-weeks uh, orientation period where a few hours a day are spent looking at the manuals. They have to know where things are kept. They even play games. They have scavenger hunts so that they have to be able to go and put their hands on certain pieces of equipment immediately. They have to know how to troubleshoot that equipment. I know where you're going. Yeah, well, you know what we do with doctors, don't you? Hey, Ralph, come here. Uh, It's four minutes before your first shift. That's where the bathroom is. And, oh, yeah, have a nice day. That's the orientation that most doctors get to the department. And it's, it's, quite frankly, woefully inadequate. And it's an embarrassment that the nurses work a lot of shifts with other nurses. They learn where things are. They know where the bathroom is. I actually have a case where a guy was called to the delivery room and had never been to the delivery room. He got lost on the way uh, on the delivery. So I think that, I think that we, we ought to think that to people from the outside world who are watching this. Like normal people? Like normal people. <laughs> this doesn't look good. Right. It, uh, any comments about that, guys? I mean, I could no, just actually, say- you know, it's, it's tough because uh, we have recently brought on a few new doctors. And um, you, uh, I feel obligated to have them oriented. I don't feel, I don't feel that they can just start. Um, but you do the eight-minute orientation, not no, the four-minute. I, I, I'm together with them for a couple of hours, and I'm basically kind of giving them the big philosophical overview, uh, that, that thing. We go through charting and the charts and the papers. But then I leave them with one of our senior doctors, and you wonder, you know, there's no checklist like there is in the nursing side, and it's kind of like, but th- then again, the doctors just need to know what to ask for. We have the a checklist now. Find it. We have a checklist now. Well, that's probably a good idea. Why don't you send me your checklist? I'll be happy to do that because I think we ought to have something that they go through that they've done this, 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 and this. In fact, some of the hospitals I know of actually have on the checklist the doctor has to meet the administrator, the chief of nursing, uh, the chief of staff. They actually set things the, these things up in the first few weeks. It makes sense to me. I think it makes sense, too, because you mu- at least might as well know who's going to be bringing pressure upon you. All yeah, right. You told a funny story, but that's, uh, that's happened to me. I've, when I was first at USC, there was an airway code, and the resident goes to the codes, but then they call Dr. Herbert to surgical intensive care unit. And I start running up the stairs, and then I realize, I don't know where the surgical intensive care unit is. Well, we do, we do have a thing where our, one of our techs or nurses will go with a doctor who is called to the code in the beginning, yeah. or the OB, because, yes, you will get lost in our hospital. Right, right. I'm sure that happens. All right, next case is, is a not only a medical case, but it's a psychological moral case. And it, um, uh, as we're recording this, the, um, the problem with uh, Skip Gates and the policeman uh, Officer Crowley in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, is taking place as as we speak. Um, here's a here's a very interesting case. EMTs refuse to treat man with chest pain due to having AIDS, and this, by the way, resulted in a settlement against the EMTs, uh, the Philadelphia Law Department, and the uh, and uh, Philadelphia EMS. Here's the case. In, uh, this is a 2001 case, actually, uh, but it wasn't decided. You see, when it happens doesn't count. 
This was this is decided 2007. So this has been back and forth uh, being argued out. In February 2001, the plaintiff, a 38-year-old male, began having chest pain at home. He had a history of high blood pressure and AIDS. His significant other, uh, otherwise known, I guess, as the domestic partner, called 911. When two EMT uh, arrived, they were informed the patient had AIDS. The testimony of both the domestic partner and the patient are that, and here's a quote, the two EMTs, their demeanor changed immediately and drastically. The plaintiff claimed that the role of one EMT um, uh, clearly became obvious. Their job was to pull their shirt over their face, turn around and run out of the room. The second EMT yelled to the plaintiff to cover his mouth or she would not help him. The plaintiff claimed that neither EMT assist, uh, uh, assessed vital signs, touched the patient. What they did was allow them to walk without assistance down to the ambulance. When they got to the hospital, neither EMT touched the patient as they got out of the back of the ambulance. They did open the door and they walked to the wheelchair. Now, uh, the, pain, the uh, plaintiff, of course, is complaining of emotional distress from having been hyperventilating in pain during this entire time. And uh, he filed under the violation of the Americans for Disabilities Act, the Federal Rehabilitation Act, uh, and uh, filed this with the Philadelphia Commission on Human uh, Relations. So there you go. And by the way, there was a significant amount of money which was paid on this case. Now, you can claim that nothing done would have changed the outcome, but that's not what they sued under. What they sued under was not for a medical harm, but for an emotional harm and violation uh, by, on the way that we manage certain patients. This must be from 1985 when there was just ridiculous hysteria about um, HIV, but still the lessons are important, obviously. <laughs> Wait a minute. This is 2001. Is that when but, this happened? Yes. Yeah. But it was settled in 2007? This is Philadelphia. Oh, my gosh. Hey, hey. You're the Philadelphia guy yeah, here. They should have offered a guy a soft pretzel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's Philly cheesesteak. hires root beer. Yeah. Well, so it's very Scrapple. interesting. It's like, uh, although nothing medically was done wrong, you can so egregiously treat the patient so poorly that you can lose a lawsuit. And I guess that's, uh, that's life. You could do that at Ralph's as well. So uh, I can treat somebody incredibly badly at Ralph's and uh, get sued. So this is really, it's not, particularly leg- it's not particularly medical, but I think it makes an important point. Well, I think the point that, that we're looking at here is without fear or favor. Um, if the EMTs had merely put a mask on the patient if they're concerned, I, I don't think this would be a case. But uh, it's always good to point out that they don't come to us for judgment. They come to us for care. Judgment is the province of the Lord. And uh, whenever we decide we're going to punish people psychologically, watch out. Because no matter what anyone says, this is the fairest country in the world. They expect you to do it right without fear or favor. And that's, that's what this case is about. Well, what I learned from all of these cases every time is just be nice. You keep telling me I can reduce my lawsuits substantially. 
Just be nice. If and doing that kind of thing is not nice. If they just leaned over and said, we're real concerned about you. We don't want any disease spread. Here's a mask for you. Help them into the chair. I, I don't think anybody's ever proven that by helping someone onto the cot, they've, they've passed AIDS. Uh, this case would not be a case. But what you see here is the trains rolling down the track. And now, as you start to do one little offense, another little offense, another little offense, and now by the time you get to the hospital, they want to get you. And that's what happened in this case. So there's a couple of cases for you, Rick. Okay, that's great, Greg. Uh, Let me uh, review one uh, paper that I found to be very interesting. It's one of a series, actually. I found six papers in, of all places, clinical orthopedics and related research. Yes, I know that sounds ridiculous. This was in volume 467 of uh, this year, 2009. And for any serious student of the literature relating to uh, medical malpractice, I really suggest that you get this. It's a series of six papers. Uh, I'm going to just comment on one of the six. It relates to uh, juries and... uh, our expectations are regarding juries. Hey, Greg, can I have that um, thing you were reading out of just then? Mm-hmm. What is this thing called? Verdict settlements and experts. Oh, these are proje- this is the projectors and stuff from Chicago. I've been reading that, by the way, for um, probably 20 years. Now, this is what Jim, I think, was wanting to get verdicts, settlements. Has, did Jim get my book? Yeah, he did. He's okay, tell him to send it back, too. <laughs> yeah, I told him if he doesn't send it back, his career is over before it begins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You don't step on Superman's cape. Exactly. You spit in the wind or take Greg Henry's book. Aren't those a couple of fun <laughs> cases, though? Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. Can you love those? Okay. <clears throat> Let's do that from the top. Okay. Right. Do it. Thanks, Gregory. Now, uh, moving on, I wanted to cover a one paper that I found, which was extraordinarily, I found, interesting. It's one of a series of six papers that is, in of all places, in a journal called Clinical Orthopedics and Related Research. It's in volume 467 of this year, 2009. Now, there are six really great papers. This research in orthopedics? No, this, these are um, essays hmm. uh, and, and factual information written generally by lawyers uh, about medical malpractice. One of the papers is entitled Juries and Malpractice uh, Claims, and uh, it was the basis of the June EMA essay 2009, which I'm sure you're Familiar. Oh, that was a classic. Uh, that classic, yeah. yes. Okay. First of all, it says, because we always kind of view this jury thing as kind of such a big deal, juries decide only 7% of malpractice cases. Did you know that? Yes, only sir. Only 7%. And plaintiffs win about uh, th- uh, only a quarter of those cases. So the doctors win three quarters of the 7%. Actually, if you ta- it's very much state dependent because in some states, uh, doctors win 90%. Well, the, actually, th- these papers kind of look at a globally kind of thing. So, I mean, that's important to know that if you go into trial, you're likely to win. But <laughs> then again, you're not supposed to go to trial if there's a slam dunk loss. The, the, yes. Of course not. The other thing is, Rick, what, what, what you're pointing out is it's not that we lose a lot. It's the cost of playing the game, which is the problem. If you've actually gone to trial, 
There's a there's a hundred thousand bucks gone before the jury comes back to say yes or no. And so it's not how much you lose. It's not if you lose. It's just how much you lose. This is a decimal point question. Got you. One of the things that was kind of interesting, now you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I, this is what these guys said. Juries are not allowed to know about out-of-court settlements made by others involved in the case. That's correct. So there was the uh, John Ritter case where they settled for $13 million with the hospital and uh, a couple of other entities. Then they sued two doctors, and the two doctors won their case, but nobody in that jury was allowed to know that the, the Ritter family already got $13 million. Well, the hospital in that case made a huge error, in my opinion. They should have, they should have stood with their docs and tried this thing because the, the, the case was going to be won. These were excellent defense attorneys, excellent experts. And, and you know what? We don't save everybody. Um, but the fact that the hospital settled would be what they call a set-off against the doctors. Let's say the doctors had lost $14 million dollars. Jury doesn't know that the hospital paid 13. So the judge would deduct the 13 from the 14, and the doctor then would only have to pay a million. You see, the doctors were brilliant in, in the way they handled this. They had a $13.5 million set off. Why not go to trial? I mean, they're going to insulate you against any big loss. I think, I think the people who handled this poorly were the, were the hospital's attorneys. Well, since they're around here, I gotta be. You you can leave here. You can go back <laughs> to Ann Arbor. We gotta live here. You know. I, I understand. They, they can find out where we live. They can go after us. Guido might come to their door one day and say, "Are you Mo Hubbard? <laughs> I got a message for you." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. One of the other things I thought was really interesting in this uh, analysis uh, of disproportionately high jury verdicts was that focusing on showing that the doctor is not negligent at the expense of not. Um, challenging the amount of the medical claim is a big mistake. They said, if you if you if the person says, "Well, this person's going to need uh, eighteen billion dollars for ongoing rehab rehabilitation," if you don't challenge that, and you and you focus only on showing that the doctor is not guilty, the jury has no choice once they say that you're guilty of paying the full amount because you never challenged the full amount. Yeah. And they said that is a fundamental mistake. Now, um, that's not a fundamental doctor mistake. No, it's that's a, a lawyer fundamental mistake. lawyer mistake. Right. This is about lawyering. This yes. is about lawyering. And I think that that so you have a two pronged attack. The doctor is not guilty, and what you're asking for is unreasonable. And this is the reason why. That's that is basically an insurance policy of of under underwriting the idea. Yes, the doctor was guilty. Okay, fine. The award is only seven million instead of fourteen. Million. Well, that's why when when they make decisions in uh, Britain or Australia, uh, nobody ever becomes an instant millionaire. They deal with something called sufficiency. What do they really need? After all, in the British system. They're going to give you all the health care you need anyway, so you can't sue for that. They give you the physical rehabilitation. They modify your house. You can't sue for any of those things in, in the British system, and I don't believe in the Australian system either. Well, I don't know anymore. It's yeah. been 17 years since I was there. But yeah. in New Zealand, you can't. New Zealand yes. has a great system. Well, the New Zealanders are probably the, the ideal system in the world, and they, they basically uh, figure out what's wrong, and they've taken blame and shame out of the system. And blame and shame are what make this system run, the current U.S. system run. They point out also four techniques that people can use to deal with high jury awards. 
First of all, they said the judges have the responsibility and authority to ratify jury verdicts. And so they can say, no, this verdict is not reasonable. You're going to make it less. Yeah, they have that authority. Let me just tell you right now, it, it, it's the ballsy judge who cuts it in half or makes it a quarter because the bottom line is a lot of judges are elected. And this, this is a popular thing in the community, the redistribution of income through this uh, this mechanism to protect people. It does happen, and I've been involved in a, in a bunch of those cases. But you know what? It's, it's not like you think it is. And the, uh, it takes a judge with real balls to actually say, sorry, you're not getting $12 million, you're getting $2 million and get out. The second thing they say is awards can be appealed to a higher court. Uh, okay, that means you're going to retry this thing, I guess. That's no. What, what, or just appeal the award? What that is is a technique of settlement. If you look at the plaintiff and say, okay, you just won $10 million bucks, we won't challenge this. We won't take it on. You don't have to try it again. If you accept $4 million today, here's the check from the insurance company. So go back and tell your client. They get $4 bucks in their pocket today minus the $1.5 million <laughs> you get. Or they may in five years uh, get, get the $10 million. Well, no. Well, they also said the risk of that strategy is fine. We're going to appeal this. If we appeal this, we may win, and you may get absolutely Nothing. not one nickel. Right. Plus, it's going to take X number of years to go to get this resolved. Plus, it's going to cost your lawyer a lot more money to retry this case. And so, therefore, you have been awarded 10. We'll give you four if you take it now, and we're not going to appeal this case. Understand, the appellate courts don't retry the case. They look at a point of law or the actual uh, amount of money given, and then they remand the case back to the trial level, to the trial court level. The appellate court never tries a case. The Supreme Court never tries a case. They refer it back, and if, for example, they said, you're right, this is a crazy amount of money, it's going to have to go back down and be retried, that would be, that would be frightening to everyone involved because you could lose more money, you could lose less money, you could totally win the case. Believe me, the plaintiff has an obligation to go back to their client and, ex- and explain the options. And what you see is when people can have money in their pocket now, as opposed to money five years down the road, they take it now. Um, yeah, I'd take it. <laughs> and, and the fourth element, that, which I thought was interesting, again, it does deals with artful lawyering, is uh, the idea of what they call high-low agreements. So it is generally agreed now that you were guilty, you screwed up, and it is just about the money. Uh, you negotiate um, uh, and say, uh, listen, we're going to take this to trial. However, if the award is less than such and such, we'll still pay you $4 million. If the award is more than $10, uh, $10 million, we're only going to pay you $10 million. It sets the limits on how high this award could be or how low this is. It's clear that the, the plaintiff is going to get some money. The, the, the limits are set. So within, independent of what the jury says in terms of what the award is, if the jury says it's 10, uh, $15 million, well, we, we agreed before the trial that the maximum paid will be ten, uh, 10 What this really is is guaranteed income for rich people. Because what it says is, uh, we're going to cap it top and bottom. And, and what that protects you from is the runaway jury. Exactly. exactly. That, that's decided to do something absolutely off the wall. And I was involved in one of those cases. I don't want to 
I don't want to relive that right now because my blood pressure is just barely under control. You know, I've had a four, a six vessel bypass, but someday when I've had enough to drink, we will review that case and how the runaway jury can do things which are unbelievable. And so high lows protect the runaway jury and it protects the plaintiff in that he knows he's going to get some money to cover his costs in this case. Yes, they're using the jury verdict of a yes or no, guilty or not guilty, only to establish uh, the magnitude of the uh, yes. You lost, fine, here's what you pay. Right. And the, and the usual what I see is two and a half to three times uh, the money. So it's $2 million on one end, $6 million on the other. That sort of thing is very common. And nobody puts a top end on it of $20 million on a, on a med mal case. That's for you students of the malpractice um, Genre. lawyering yes. business. Okay, so enough of that. Now, are we going to get into something a little bit more clinical? Gentlemen? Are we, are we, is, is the fight on? The great debate? Is it time? I think it may be time for the great is debate. All right, ladies and gentlemen, in this corner, <laughs> in the red corner, at 210 pounds, the KG veteran... Of, from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Rick Bucata. Yeah, yeah, museum steps. I can see myself now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know it. You look good. In 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 the white corner, uh, wearing weighing almost nothing, and bringing damn near nothing to the table intellectually, <laughs> is the young challenger Mel Herbert from Billabong, Australia. Yeah. You go down. Hey. You go down. Now, see, gentlemen, actually, gentlemen, <laughs> come to the corner. Come over here. Let's wipe off those gloves. Are we doing Marcus and Queensberry? Uh, yeah, with Marcus and Queensberry. I want you to uh, come out fighting. Nothing below the belt. Uh, I don't want to hear any weird, unusual comments to literature in 1942. Okay, keep it clean. Keep your hands away from your heads. And now, first shot will be that of Mel Herbert, who's going to claim he knows how to take care of chest pain in the emergency room. Mel, you ignorant slut, go ahead. Well, actually, I'm going to turf it immediately back to Rick because um, what this debate is about is that uh, the American College of Cardiology guidelines say, according to Rick, that uh, when somebody comes in with chest pain that they need a provocation test before they leave. Is that what your premise is? Uh, I'm going to be the conduit. I'm going to be the messenger of the guidelines of the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology. I Actually, I'm going to you know, probably endorse their point of view uh, to a certain extent, and you're, and you're not going to endorse I'm their point de -endorse. of view. But the reason yeah. we're talking about this here on a medical legal tape is because here in writing are the um, guidelines, quote-unquote, of the American uh, Heart Association. Association. I always want to say hospital. Yeah. <laughs> and the American College of Cardiology. And I'm concerned, first of all, that physicians know what these are, so that they will not be used against you, and that, that if you know what they are and you actively choose to ignore them or do something different, then you will either have a good reason for doing that, or you will be ignorant, then you'll go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. No, let's. And you'll become Bubba's little the, boy. The reason this is on this uh, particular program is clearly chest pain still amounts to between thirty-five and forty percent of the money's lost in emergency medicine. The big money losses are still myocardial infarction, pulmonary embolus, dissection of the aorta. I mean, this is where the money is. And and I don't know any emergency doc. I know plenty who haven't seen a, a, an aortic dissection in 10 years. Everybody looks at potential uh, ACS every single day. We only have so many resources. 
uh, we've got to do what's best for the country financially as well as what's best for the individual. Although, All right, you ignorant slut. Just tell me, what do the guidelines say and minute. why do you Before endorse we get into that, the, uh, but you, you would have said, I'm expecting you to have said, what is the tolerance for error in this area? What is the acceptable miss rate? Yeah, and the answer is zero. Well, the acceptable miss rate currently, but now with the uh, new brilliant programs which are going to be coming out under our esteemed president, maybe we will actually start talking about acceptable miss rate, which, by the way, every other country in the world talks about. Well, um, I'll get to that. Go on. Continue. Can I, can I set There's this so up? so much to say. Set it Go. up. Can I set it up a little bit? Uh, in the preamble of some of the papers I reviewed, it says, I have an example to put this in perspective, 8 million ED chest pain visits a year to uh, emergency departments in the United States. 8 million. Minimum. Uh, 10 million if you throw in chest pain and dyspnea, which is, and it's the second most frequent ED complaint. I don't know what the first most frequent ED complaint is. I'm weak and dizzy since 1954, and I have fibromyalgia. Yeah, go ahead. 5 to 15% have heart attacks or other cardiac diseases. 5 to 15% of this 8 to 10 million who come in, more than half are admitted for observation and further testing. That's a huge amount of patients, a huge number. Rule-out rates for acute coronary syndrome are as high as 95% or over 95%, depending on who you read. But the, the number generally is viewed as 95% ruled out for acute coronary syndrome. Well, but the question here, Rick, is is 5% a reasonable pickup rate? If we're picking up 5%, it's not the 95 we're not picking up. It's the 5% we're picking up. I mean, I know a lot of people who think, well, if you pick up 1 out of 20, that's not a bad use of our of our resources. Well, let's step back and just reinforce what acute coronary syndrome is by definition, since more than 95% of these people don't have it. Right. Uh, acute coronary syndrome is STEMI, NSTEMI, and unstable angina. And what we're really focusing on here is unstable angina. Yeah, STEMI is an NS, NS, uh, STEMI, ST elevation. NSTEMI, you got a troponin bump. Uh, that's, that, that's easy. The hard ones are unstable angina. These are the new cases that are arriving. They've never, ne- never had this pa- pain before. And the question is, does this person have pain as a result of cardiac ischemia or not? It's not there now. It was there yesterday when he, ca- uh, when he first complained about it. So unstable angina. Let's go just and restate the definitions. Rest angina, new onset angina, or increasing angina. But for our purposes, this is more likely to be new onset angina. I never had it before. I was never diagnosed with this. Doc, what's going on with my chest? People say, so, so that's what I like to drill down to. The people now who are coming in, they don't have chest pain now. I had it this morning. It literally made me concerned. My wife it. made me come in. I had it yesterday. No, I don't have it now, but, you know, I'm, con- I'm concerned. So really what we're talking about is the, uh, the new onset subset of unstable angina. Uh, People say you need to risk stratify these people. When they talk about risk stratification, they're really talking about, you know, what's the likelihood of you having a heart attack or something nasty kind of thing like that. And people have looked at these risk stratification protocols, TIMI, GRACE, PURSUIT, and others. And even in the lowest, lowest uh, category of people, the number of uh, people who have something nasty happen within a, uh, a month or thereabouts is around 4%, 5%. Would you agree to that, Melvis? Uh, continue. Um, it's low. It's, de- well, it's, it's I think certainly it's low. Not, it's not zero, and it depends on what outcome you, 
you care about. That's what gets confusing. If people just yes. look at death and MI, that's one thing. If you look deaf, MI, pulmonary embolism, and ur- we, we, need for urgent revestible If we're talking about death, then I, I, think, I think if you look at it, if they had three normal EKGs, three uh, negative sets of troponins, the chances of being dead in the next 30 days is less than one in a thousand. And that's a really exactly. critical point, the definition of the negative outcome that you're looking for. Because would you acknowledge that if you had to have revascularization within 30 days, that the implication is that you screwed it up the first time, you, let them, you sent them home, and, and they got lucky, and they got back to the hospital again, and they came in for a revisit, and now they got admitted? So, would you, so it, I think the definition is, is broader than you died. Well, yeah, that's, this is the first biggest sticking point on this and what matters. To me, what matters, if I send you home to die, that's what I really care about. I don't want you to go home to die. So that's the one I really care about, in which case the miss rate is very low. By, by the way, you also have to define what you get by putting them in and doing a study. Because if you now come in, or let's say the next day you set up their treadmill and it's normal, there's still going to be a certain number of those who go home and will drop over dead. The tests that we have are not perfect. Can we all agree with that? Agree. That a treadmill is not perfect. A, a, right. uh, but we haven't gotten to what the Heart Association says right. to do. We're just setting up the, right. the background. Here. So right. I want to keep going on that. So death is what I really care about. Uh, missing an MI, okay, I might care about that, but I really only care about missing MIs that result in... CHF or something else. Because if I miss a small inferior mine, you don't die from it and nobody ever knows and it's picked up on an EKG, I don't care about that. So I only really care about missing death, missing things like urgent target vessel revascularization. Uh, I don't care so much about that. So I saw you today and 15 days from now you come out with chest pain and they go, oh, you've got a lesion. As long as that doesn't result in death or loss of myocardial function, I don't really care. So you're really willing to take a bit of a crapshoot here on... Nothing really much will happen, and they'll, they'll come back in, and we'll identify it at a later time. And eat it, but yeah, you uh, the KG the KG veteran <laughs> comes back with a quick blow to the head. <laughs> Dang, the first round is over, and on everybody's card, this is being scored as a tie. <laughs> round two, a tie. He hasn't even said anything. I haven't said anything. I'm just sitting up. Uh, that was the <laughs> smartest thing he could have done. Well, let me get sp- a little bit specific. As an example, let's look at the Timmy risk score. The Timmy risk score validated. Everybody knows about it theoretically. They don't know what the elements are, and they can't use it on a day-to-day basis, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Age over 65, at least three risk factors for coronary disease, prior known coronary stenosis of 50% or more, ST segment deviation, up or down, at least two anginal episodes in the prior 24 hours, use of aspirin in the prior week, and elevated biomarkers. Well, if I listen, I'm I'm 65, and I t- if I took an aspirin, I am already at two, at two. Right. Well, the fact is, is that in the studies that looked at outcomes, if you had zero to one point, there was a 4.7 percent rate of all-cause mortality, new or recurrent MI, or severe recurrent ischemia requiring urgent revascularization. I think Mel would agree that all of three of those things are bad. Would you not recurrent ischemia requiring urgent revascularization? You, yeah, well, you would agree that. Well, I had well, emergent revascularization. I feel just fine. Yeah, I don't really care. I care about yeah. you dying or uh, having an MI. All right. It's so it, it's certainly let's it's not something back. I'd like, but yeah. what I really care about is let's death step around. back. So Dr. Herbert saw this patient two weeks ago, mm-hmm. sent him out, 
costochondritis, came back in uh, two weeks later, and he's now having his cardiac uh, uh, bypass surgery. Would that be viewed as great work, Dr. Herbert? Great work. Pick that up right away. No now, problem. wait a second. If on that first visit, what he presented with was clear costochondritis. No, he presented with uh, coronary ischemia. What you're talking about. Later, he's having well, revascularization. Let's define this then. What we're talking about is people that we do not have a clear and, and present diagnosis on the patient. Is that fair? Yes, and that's where we're moving. But okay. I know what, you're, what you're, trying to, you're trying to get me to say. What are, I agree with you. I'm going to come to work, and you're going to tell me that uh, this guy just had bypass, up, and I'm going to say, I feel bad about that. Is he dead? No. Uh, did he have a big MI, lose myocardial infarction? No, I can sleep tonight. Could you have aborted his bypass? Maybe. Mm, uh, very unlikely. Maybe. Maybe, unlikely. and I could. Uh, it's very unlikely. Okay, if well, he needed bypass... Two weeks of another few burgers is not going to change yeah, that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, so let's get back to the number. In fact, that guy could go to lunch with us today and did an out burger. Exactly. And woo. Yeah. So Timmy has seven elements. I meet two elements already without even going to the hospital. The, the rate of having all-cause mortality, new or recurrent MI, or severe ischemia requiring urgent revascularization was 4.7%. One in 20 cases. Right. One in 20 cases. Two points, you're at one in 12 cases. But in any case, we also acknowledge that a normal EKG does not exclude ischemia. One to six percent have an uh, NSTEMI, who have a normal EKG, and at least four percent have unstable angina, which is one in 25. Therefore, therefore, the Heart Association says, and this is what I, I think that uh, this is my version of what they said, um, you need a period of observation after getting an EKG and an initial troponin, and if that EKG is normal or nonspecific and the troponin is normal, that you need a period of observation. And another, and over a period of observation, you're looking for recurrent chest pain, any arrhythmias, any kind of uh, other elements of cardiovascular instability. Stop. We don't know what that timeline actually ought to be, though. There are perfectly good fights that say three hours is adequate. There's another group that says four hours. There's one that says, no, it's got to be up to six hours. Well, I don't think for, that's defined. We're looking for bumps in uh, troponin. Right. And the, the Heart Association is saying six to eight hours. It's really depending on when the pain began. But six to eight hours is kind of the ballpark that they're talking about. So we would agree that a period of observation is considered to be reasonable. Okay. So whatever that reasonable time period is, we're going to be now at the end of that. We've looked at the last EKG. We've gotten the last troponin back. Uh, the patient feels well. Go ahead, Rick. What do you see? This is the this is the point where every emergency doc in the country is on the ropes. Is that a fair statement, no, Mel? No, they're on the ropes before this. Because I'm saying every one of these needs to be held in the department for a period of time to have these observations and these tests done. Unless, unless you can in your heart of hearts say, well, the reason you got this chest pain is you've been coughing a lot and you, you, know, and you have a chest wall pain and every time you cough, that's, it's, it's a, it's a, you have a chest wall strain. See, unless you can say with a substantial amount of confidence in yourself, I understand what your chest pain is from, and it's not cardiac, and you're going home, and you're going home right now. That's the case. If you cannot say that, if you cannot say, I know what the cause of this pain was that you had. You don't have it now. I can tell you Gentlemen, what you had a week ago or a day ago or three days ago. Can the combatants agree on this point, that if we have a cause, uh, a little infiltrate, a little cough, a little sputum, that's not the same 
as somebody who's got non-defined chest pain. Right, which is the majority of the cases. Well, I, I'm perfectly well aware of that. And, and they're not 75. Most of these are 52, and, and uh, you're Actually, not quite sure. I'm going to show you a paper. The average age is 46. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure that's the case. And what we have to do is define these pretty carefully because I think, I think Mel is coming out of this saying, you know, there's people I'm genuinely going to send home. Right, and, and I'm not arguing with that. I think my argument is largely over. If you would agree that patients who you don't know the cause of their chest pain are held and, re- and have serial EKGs and serial troponins, and at the end of that, at the end of that, have some more definitive test, which, we, which is yet to be defined, then that's all I'm asking people to do, and that's all the heart association is asking people to do. They are asking you to do that definitive test or some such of definitive test within quickly within 72 hours and they're asking you to treat that person until that the def- results of that def- test are known as if they are potentially having cardiac disease by giving them an aspirin yep. considering beta blockers give, giving them nitro but uh, but you're not telling us that we first of all I don't think that the giving them nitro has ever changed the outcome on this they they were used as as examples as examples uh, but I think that uh, the vast majority of us, uh, when we see these people, we set them up for an outpatient uh, cardiology eval and a, and a stress test of some kind. I'm not defining what that test is going to be, and, and, and we're going to talk about I. that. But if you're telling me that every patient who has three sets of normal zymes and three normal EKGs after six hours has to be admitted to the no, I'm not. coronary care no, unit, I'm not. that I wouldn't go with. I would uh, like to make a few... Uh, Comments here. Are you finished, Rick? The, the Are you di- done? The distillate, the distillate of yeah. this is every chest pain patient with, who's not 15, who you don't know the diagnosis of in your heart of hearts, needs to be assumed and evaluated for acute coronary ischemia. Syndrome. That okay. is my, the distillate of my discussion. Well, the young challenger is getting off the mat. We're dusting his gloves. He's coming out. Mel, it's your shot. You are an ignorant <laughs> slut. <laughs> uh, we've established that with three sets of comments. Move on. All right. First of all, we have to define our terms. So I basically agree with much of what uh, Rick has said. How could you not? Because uh, mostly what he's saying here is fact. So the first thing is the definition of terms. We're talking about chest pain or chest pain, and you started to get to it. And this used to annoy me about what Jerry would say. Jerry would say, hey, send all these people home. You like, just do the right thing. Yeah, just do the right thing. What the hell do you mean by that? So the first thing you have to understand is that these guidelines assume that the chest pain that you're talking about, you have defined as angina. And this is the single biggest problem. I disagree, but I, I'll, I'll hold my comment. You shut the hell up. Um, that's what they assume. They use the Canadian uh, cardiovascular classification for angina, and that is a typical story. Um, that's what all of these guidelines basically use, that the story that you're getting is pretty good. I mean, it's tight, it's heavy, um, it's non-pluritic in nature, so the Canadian classification system is really what you use first. And if you do that first, then I'm beginning to agree with you. Um, If this person has typical chest pain and it's anginal-like and it's in their jaw and it's worse when they're walking, okay, that person has angina. What you're saying and what uh, I think people are misinterpreting this as Everybody that comes in with chest pain, even when I'm not sure what it is, has to go through this protocol. And the fundamental flaw of that is, is because you will say, and you've said to me before, I don't know what this chest pain is, so therefore I have to work it up for acute coronary syndrome. That's bogus because we do that all the time. 
I don't know what your belly pain is, but it's nothing bad. Our job is to make that first pass. You're 30 years old, you've got some chest pain. I don't know what it is. It's very atypical. Um, the probability that this is acute coronary syndrome is low. So we have to first define which chest pain patients are we talking about. Are we talking about anybody with a chest with some pain? Or are we talking about people who have a story which could it in some way be an acute coronary syndrome? We have to do that first. Second point, and I'm going to just blow through all of these and then you're going to come back to me at the end. Second point is, are we talking about science or guidelines? Because the science, I will get back to you, what we're doing isn't science. It's ridiculous. And because all of these tests that we would apply to the, these patients, they're all useless. The number of false positives is way more than the number of true positives. If we follow those guidelines blindly, we will hurt. We absolutely will hurt more people than we help. The next thing is um, we choose not to follow guidelines all the time. So you're telling me, I've got to follow this guideline because the American College of Cardiology said do it. And I'm going to tell you, we do not follow other people's guidelines all the time. I do not follow the guidelines for giving TPA for stroke, and neither do you. I do not follow the ATLS guidelines for the treatment of trauma, and neither do you. This is just another example of, that's an interesting guideline, but I'm going to choose to use it or not. It's not my guideline. It's not the American College of... It's uh, a guideline. guideline. That's the point. It's a guideline and not a law. So I, my basic premise is guidelines are interesting. Guidelines are fun. This is a very, very powerful group. You should know about it. But who are you talking about? That's not the majority of patients that I see. And if I choose not to do that guideline, I will choose not to use it because I do that all the time in my practice. And when then I will do a very nice chart. So let me get back to the science. I want to get back to the science. The science of this is if you take all these low-risk patients, if you do a, a brainless approach to this and say anybody with a chest who comes in who's 30 years old with chest pain and I can't definitively say what it is, which is the vast majority of the people that come in, I'm 44. I have chest pain all the time. If you follow that premise, I must rule out an acute coronary syndrome, then what you're going to do is to take your... And this was just in the annals this month. Um, if you take low-risk patients, 35, 40 years old, very atypical story, negative EKG, two negative troponins, six hours, 12 hours apart. If I then apply the usual test to these people, whether it be a treadmill or a nuclear test or a CT scan, the number of false positives is going to outnumber the number of true positives by about four to one. And we can argue about what it is, but it's many more false positives than true positives. So what does that mean I have to do? What do the cardiologists have to do? Do they then have to do an angiogram on these people? If they do angiograms, then you're going to have all the complications of angiograms, all the cost of angiograms, and we are going to hurt many more people than we help. What we need, we're all frustrated by this, is a non-invasive, uh, fast, non-radiation-giving way of uh, investigating your coronary arteries. If there was a cheap, fast way to do that, we'd all agree. Ninety-nine. I don't, I don't care. I'll take everybody and put them in that machine. Yeah. That machine doesn't exist. Ninety-nine percent sensitivity. Ninety-nine percent um, uh, specificity. specificity. It has to even be. You do it. It probably isn't. Has to be at least ninety-nine percent. Yeah. Because in the study in this month's annals, they take forty-year-olds uh, with chest pain. Pretty good stories. Negative EKG. Two negative troponins. Then they put them on a treadmill and they find that uh, they took these people to cath, and I can't remember the exact numbers. I didn't bring it with me, but there were many more negative caths than positive caths. And when you do cath, you hurt people. There are clots, there's bleeding. So I'm going to suggest to you, Rick, I understand what you're saying, but I don't think that's good medicine. I don't think you should be taking your 30-year-old chest pain, and I don't know exactly what it is, and sticking them through a protocol like this. Because at the end of it, 
we're going to dump out a bunch of people with false positives that then get hurt. Dr. Herbert, would you agree in this fight that you are dependent upon the patient population that you see, that he sees a different patient population than you do? And do you think that you can't compare an inner city patient population, which tends to have more young people, uh, than you can with a suburban or a rural population, which tends to see a lot more old people, and think that the same strategy may, be, may work for both of them. Absolutely. If I did nothing to the patients that came in with chest pain at my hospital, if I just sent them all home, I'd only miss about 1%. Our ruling rate is so low. So absolutely, you have to know the population uh, that you're looking after. But the basic premise that everybody with chest pain has to go through a protocol to rule out acute coronary syndromes, I think, is just wrong. It's going to hurt more people than it helps. Having said that, chest pain frightens me. And atypical presentations frighten me. So if there's any question, then I think you need to follow one of those protocols. It probably won't help the patient most of the time, but I understand it. But I'm not taking a 35-year-old with atypical chest pain with normal EKGs and normal troponins and sending them down a path that will result in an invasive test, which is more likely to hurt them than help them. Well, I don't think that necessarily it will result in an invasive test, number one. And I do think that we have some fundamental uh, disagreements regarding some of our definitional things. You talked about the Canadian uh, uh, issues Canadian of, of defining uh, angina kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would take the other position and say, uh, I don't know what it is. Um, I don't know what, what, it, what this chest pain is. I really don't feel comfortable making a clinical diagnosis. There's going to be a subset where you do, but in that subset where you don't, the chest pain doesn't exist. It was there, you know, Three hours ago, it's not there now. So how can you possibly determine that? I think that uh, I would I would not define this as well. Do you have a good history consistent with angina? Because we know so many people have anginal equivalents and atypical angina, those kinds of things. The risk in a 35 year old, or if you're wrong, is much greater than it is in, in a 75 year old. So that and, and we've all seen 25 and 30 and I've seen them uh, uh, patients come in. So the issue here is is how many people will get over-evaluated, over-evaluated. And nobody's going to argue about, I think it's almost considered to be, and I don't want to use that phrase now, standard of care. Yeah, yeah. thank you, Rick. But many, they talk about all of these people who are admitted to the hospital for observation. All of them, the, 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 it's kind of, that's what's done. They're put into an observational unit and they basically get these tests and at the end of it, they get some kind of procedure. And what people are trying to do is focus on a way of let's get the answer a lot quicker and a lot faster and less expensively. Unfortunately, the answer, the last test is the crooks. If you're talking about a CTA, you're talking about you know five to ten millisieverts of juice um, in a in a relatively young person, and that's the that is the problem. We don't have a good enough test, but that doesn't mean that this person is, does not have. This is their manifestation of angina. I take it very seriously. People who are young who come to the emergency department and say they have chest pain. You never went to the chest hospital for chest pain. You say you have it all the time. You, are, you, those people who come are se- selecting themselves. They are not GERD patients. Uh, the literature, they go to family doctors. People who come to us have a genuine concern. And and to be candid, what if you had your cousin or your brother go to the emergency department? He's 40. He has chest pain. And um, they said, well, we don't, not exactly quite sure. EKG was okay. First troponin was okay. Wouldn't you feel a heck of a lot better saying, well, you know, they kept me for a while. 
they they did uh, these tests and they did serially and I was okay and then they ultimately did this whether it be a thallium stress test or whatever the last test is, you would say, you know, they did a good job. I feel more confident that my brother of 45 probably doesn't have coronary artery disease. I, I think that uh, there's a certain reality here. I know doctors, when doctors get chest pain, they don't get any of this crap. They are taken right to uh, to uh, a, a angiogram. Yeah, just like my friend who was 40 years old with his chest pain and went straight to angiogram, who developed an arterial thrombosis, who then had to have a thrombectomy, who then had another thrombectomy, who was on heparin. He's exactly the, the poster child for why this is bad. It's bad to go to angio. But I'm going to agree with you. Basically, I'm going to agree with you. I think a careful history and physical exam is good, an EKG, some time of observation, 6 hours, 12 hours, another EKG, two negative troponins, and if all that's negative, this is where we start to diverge, and this is the problem where the science and the guidelines... At that point, you've picked up almost all of the people that are going to have something bad happen. Now what you're left with is all that bunch, the 99 out of 100 that have nothing, and that's the group that we have the difficulty with. What do we do with those? If we send them all home, it is by far the right thing to do medico-legally, I mean, not medically, cost-effective-wise to take that bunch of people that you've now defined the really low-risk group and to apply tests to them, many more false positives than true positives. Okay, well, let's step back and ask one thing that we, I think we agree on then. We're disagree Would you not then, I don't know what the diagnosis is, would you not say it's prudent to have you stay here a while? Let's see if it comes back. Let's see what your troponins are. Let's do a couple of EKGs. Let's observe you. The question about what the definitive test is at the end is honestly not our problem. It, it, it's the cardiologist's problem. Do you want to do a, a stress echo? Do you want to do a, a thallium? Do you want to do a plain stress test? Do you want to do a CTA? Frankly, I don't want to get into that argument. But I think that for the emergency physicians, it's a no-brainer. You don't know the reason that person's there. You need to keep them for this period of time. Would we agree on that? Um, up to a point, yes. And I think that's important to realize in the guidelines for the people listening to this, is that they say in the guideline, even in the guideline, once you've done your negative tropes, you've watched them, and normal EKGs, it's okay to send them home. Yes, it is. Yes. Send them as long as they get followed up in 72 hours. And we know that from the Goldman studies. The chance that they're going to die or have something bad is less than one in a thousand at that point. One in a thousand of badness is going to happen in the next 72 hours. So maybe yep. we're not debating, my friend. Well, here's, I want to ask you this. So, because you keep saying, I'm not sure. What if the 38-year-old comes in and says, Rick, I've got this chest pain. It's sharp, lasts for a second. Worse every time I take a deep breath. Worse when I move around. And you do a chest x-ray and everything's nothing. You're out of here, There's buddy. nothing on there. You're out of here. So this is where Jerry and makes people confused because that's the right thing to do. You're doing the right thing. This is clearly not, plur this is not cardiac chest pain. That's where people get confused. I don't know what it is. But everything about it says it's atypical. Bye-bye. So we gotta, if we're agreeing on that point, that's fine. If he comes in and says, i got this funny feeling, and it's a little heavy, I'm like, okay, that's a different story. Yep. You have to start with history to begin with. No, I, I agree. So <laughs> I don't think we're debating each other. I think the only thing we're debating is the risks associated with the, the – most definitive stress stressor or the CTA or those kinds of things. I think that's where 
the problem is. Ladies and gentlemen, the the ring girl has gone around, (laughs) and you will not believe this, a love fest is broken out here in this heavyweight fight. Hey, man. I love you, man. (laughs) And next time, next week, come back and hear them fight about the patient who last year had a normal (laughs) uh, stress test, and now they're back in with chest pain, and what should we do? Yeah, I know that totally. I don't care what you had last year. All right, that's it. uh, uh, We may be out of time. Let me check the time here, please, and thank you. We are at, gentlemen, three hours and 27 minutes. We started. We are an hour and 10 minutes into this thing yep. here. And we had a few breaks, but, yeah, we're, mine says an hour and 10. Let's do so, one of the month and end this thing. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> well, gentlemen, it, it was a great debate. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay. Gentlemen, great debate. And I think that uh, anybody who practices real clinical emergency medicine, the chest pain saga goes on and on and it is not resolved. It's like your grandmother's buttocks. It goes on forever. That's exactly right. part about this is that you could spend days going over the, well, is it CTA versus this test or that test? You can look at Judd Hollander's stuff about don't even keep them and don't even observe them. Just send them over for that CTA and get them the heck out of there yep. and you'll save all this money. That's w- much more controversial than the, the basic point that we were talking about. Right. So, Gregory, it's wine, wine Prevent my heart disease. Prevent it with a good wine. Well, th- and that <laughs> is an important point, that there's some good data to suggest that two glasses of red wine a day uh, clean the vessels. In fact, on my wine cellar at home, I, I've got that. I've got it renamed my medicine cabinet. And, <laughs> and you've it, deducted uh, it. <laughs> it. And it works. And I've deducted it, exactly. Uh, no, the wine we're going to speak about today is, uh, again, a California wine. Uh, we, you know, I get more comments on wine of the month than I do anything we actually write in the body of this. Uh, but we're going to reiterate a great California uh, vineyard, and that is uh, Joseph Phelps, the uh, the Phelps uh, 2005 Merlot. And I'm I'm not always a, a big Merlot fan. Sometimes they're too big uh, a taste and too broad and too sloppy. But uh, the 2005. Those are uh, wines <laughs> yes, like yes, that. yes, right. Uh, but sloppy. the. The Joseph Phelps 2005 Merlot, fantastic. You can get that at about 42 bucks a bottle. $42. Wait, uh, oh, that's expensive. Europe. Wait, wait, wait a second. <laughs> Forget that. No, we can't always do cheap wines. I, I also get that complaint $42. that uh, you guys you guys would love us to do, uh, you know, Mad Dog 2020 and stuff like that. No, we're, we're, we really do give you a variety of wines here. Um, and, uh, and, uh, I think that uh, if you've got an event coming up, great date, that sort of thing, the Joseph Phelps, 2005, terrific. All right, I have to jump in here, though. I've got to give you a quick wine of the month because um, somebody complained about doing Pinot Grigios, but I've found the (laughs) best bottle of wine I've ever had in my life is a Santa Santa Margarita Pinot Grigio, the 2006-2007. It's $18 a bottle at Costco, and I don't want to drink anything else ever again. It's the greatest thing in the world. You're drinking routinely eighteen dollar a bottle of wine. No, huh? that's not my. What about that's the, not my daily. What about drink, the two buck chuck kind of thing? Oh, wait, no, let's get into two buck chuck again. We've done two buck chuck on this show. I will say this: a few months ago, we did the uh, white sangria. You can do a red sangria with the two buck chuck red, uh, a small amount of Christian Brothers brandy, a small amount of forty three liqueur. Uh, and just a, a tad of 7-Up, and you know what? It's great. You put some fruit in that? Uh, what, some what? Fruit. Oh, yeah. You oh, always yeah. throw a little watermelon, a little uh, uh, some, some oranges, things like that in that. But I'll tell you what, I don't think you can tell the difference when you've doctored it. 
no. be- between a, an expensive wine and two buck check. So if I'm making sangria for the crowd, it's two buck check all the way. That's why sangria is uh, so popular. You can urinate in that thing after you put all the fruit and stuff, and it tastes great. What do you mean you can? <laughs> <laughs> okay, gentlemen, that's September Risk Management Monthly. Thank you very much. Look forward to talking with you soon. Bye. Bye-bye.